So, uh, uh, hi, it's Graham here. Sorry to interrupt your podcast listening like this, but uh, I wondered if you could do us a little favour. I haven't told Carol I'm going to do this, and frankly, I'm not sure she's going to find out. Let's maybe keep it that way, shall we? Uh, I don't think she listens to the podcast, so she won't hear that I've tacked this on to the beginning. But the European Security Blogger Awards, they're about to happen, and Smashing Security has been nominated in a couple of categories. Huzzah, huzzah! You can vote in the awards for your favourite security blogs and security podcasts, hint, hint, but you've only got a few days before the voting closes. So do it today. Do it now. Hit pause. Oh, not before I've told you the URL. It's smashingsecurity.com slash vote. That will redirect you through magic to the voting form. And, well, hey, made the best podcast co-hosted for the last six or so years by a Brit and a Canadian win. Um, yeah, over to you. Smashingsecurity.com slash vote. Thank you very much. We love you all, uh, at least the people who vote for us. Uh, but for now, back to your normal service. And uh, sorry about this interruption. Isn't boudoir mean r- risque? Uh, well, like, bo- well, boudoir doesn't have to mean risque, does it? Well, what's risque? A bit of nip showing? Like, wh- what do you well, mean? De- goodness gracious. <laughs> yes, Carol, definitely a bit of nip showing. You know, if there was photographs of me in my dressing gown with my smoking pipe and my slippers in my boudoir, not so risque. Yeah? <laughs> it's risque enough for me not, like, to not want to see it, I'm telling you. Oh, I think I now want to leave the car. <laughs> Smashing Security, Episode 321, Eurovision, Acts of War, and Twitter Circles, with Carol Terrio and Graham Cluley. Hello, hello, and welcome to Smashing Security, Episode 321. My name's Graham Cluley. And I'm Carol Terrio. And Carol, this week we have a returning guest. Uh, he's not been on the show for quite a while, but glad to have him back. Who have we got in the hot seat? <laughs> it's journalist John Layden. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's so great for you to be here. Now, what have you been working on since you've last been on? Well, so since I've last been on, that must have been a couple of years ago. Um, And most of the time I was working for the Daily Swig, which uh, was part Mm. of Portsvigger. So unfortunately, in March, I was made redundant from that job. So I've now embarked on the, the wild world of freelancing tech journalism. So you're a freelancer now. I am. I'm a hired gun. You are looking for more work. Are you, uh, is this an ad? Is this an ad post for you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm open for work. Let's put it that way. And in the past, John, you've worked for all kinds of publications, haven't you? You've worked for The Register for many years as their cybersecurity correspondent you were with. Was it CRN, I seem to remember? I worked for, I started off work for Network News. So I wrote about oh, network networking news. and things like that. Um, but that was a long time ago. Um, yeah. I was with the register for 17 years, so I had wow. a lot of experience there. Yeah, well, we always loved reading our articles. So, uh, guys, if you're looking for a writer, this is the guy. Why, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Now, let's kick off this week. But first, let's thank our wonderful sponsors, Bitwarden, Collide and Outpost 24. It's their support that help us give you this show for free. Now, coming up in today's show, Graham, what do you got? I'm going to be letting you into my inner circle. Your inner circle? (laughs) I don't know if I want to go there. John, what about you? I'm going to talk about war and peace, cyber attacks, insurance, and uh, very large payouts. Okay, good. A light topic. And uh, as we all know, Eurovision 2023 is upon us. Let's see if there's anything cyber to worry about. Plus, we have a featured interview with John Stock from Outpost 24, explaining that while you might not be able to get your attack surface down to zero, you can reduce it dramatically by taking the correct steps. All this and much more coming up on this episode of Smashing Security. Now, chums, chums, are either of you fans of wrestling? No. No, John. Are you, do you fancy you often oil yourself uh, up? Or? Not especially. I did go to WrestleMania in the US, but that was back in the eighties. Ah, yes. The US version of wrestling is very different from the British version. I remember in the nineteen seventies watching ITV. Obviously, not at my house. We weren't allowed ITV. But... <laughs> is that Big Daddy times? Yes, Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks. 
Dickie Davies would be there as well. I, but I, I actually want to talk about the American WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment. I think they used to be called the WWF. Yes, it, and for obvious reasons, yeah, <laughs> they were told, back down, back down. Duke of Edinburgh wanted to go around there and start shooting pandas or something. Anyway, I'm talking about the one which involves Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, yes. The one who took down Daily Beast. Oh, oh, because they yeah. posted about his, um, mm-hmm. yes, his shenanigans, I mm-hmm. think, didn't they? Well, if you are into WWE and in the world of uh, entertainment wrestling, you would probably know of a chap called Vince McMahon. Have you heard of Vince McMahon? No. no. Sorry. He is the businessman who basically runs WWE. And the Lord, the master and God of all sports entertainment. Oh, boy. And all that participate in any manner, whether or not it's in the ring or you buy a ticket, you will worship me. He ran WWE for 40 years, but very, very visibly. He would be there in the ring, in his suit. Sometimes there'd be a punch-up. He'd be in the middle of it. He's probably in his 70s by now. But he was very much the big man of wrestling. He was running the show. He was the CEO. If you were interested in the backstage goings-on at WWE, you may also be interested in a new book that's coming out all about Vince McMahon called Ringmaster. Ah. And... It's been written by a transbian authoress, Abraham Josephine Reisman. A what? A transbian is a trans-lesbian. This is how uh, Abraham Reisman describes herself, is a, as a transbian okay, authoress. Okay, I've never heard that term, ever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is, this is, it, it's all right to call people transbians if they're comfortable being called transbians. Don't, yeah, it's uh, only, only if other people understand what the heck you're talking about. But yes. It, exactly. Well, I, I just got it from her Twitter profile. Okay. This is what she calls okay. herself. Right? Well, I'm so, very happy with that. That's great. Okay, so she's written a book about Vince. Can we call him Vinny for just for fun? Vinny. 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 Yeah, you can do that if you want. You can do that okay. if you wish. When you were at WrestleMania, John, Back in the 80s or the 90s, you may remember that WWE wrestlers, they don't wear many clothes, do they? No, they don't wear many clothes. And um, there may be an element of orchestration in the fights. I don't know. What? What? Some fiction? (laughs) Yes. Are you suggesting? There could be some theatrics involved. (laughs) But that's part of the fun, though, right? That's why, I mean, I did used to watch, you're reminded, I did watch it as a kid because we'd only had about three channels. So if you wanted to watch TV and that happened to be on, that's what you watched. And, you right. know, even as a kid, mm. you knew it was kind of fake. Um, did you? I don't know. Anyway, some kids are crazy for it. Some gr- grown-ups are crazy for it as well. The thing about WWE wrestlers, as we've ascertained, they don't wear very many clothes. They're presumably comfortable being photographed in the ring wearing their skimpy spandex outfits. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want people to photograph me in skimpy spandex stuff. Well, you know, I, I'm not giving my permission. Let me put that out there right now. If anyone gets hold of photographs like that, I don't want to see pictures of you like that, Carol. Or John. <laughs> Do you know what? I am actually looking right now at WWE outfits <laughs> on Google Images. Yeah. And it is astounding. It is really quite astounding how spandexy it actually it all is. There's a guy here with like a fake sun and bat wings. So he puts his arms up and it makes him look like a whole sun. Ah, proof for when they jump from the corner of the ring and glide right? down. To do, I don't know the names yeah. of all them. Anyway, <laughs> back to authoress Abraham Josephine Reisman, who's written this book right? As we're talking about not wearing very many clothes. Now, as she told friend of the show, Chris Stoker Walker, who appeared on the show a while back, he's been writing for BuzzFeed. Mm. uh, She told him how she'd recently had a private photo shoot. She said, I did a boudoir shoot a few weeks ago, and I had some nice photographs of myself taking them. One of them was risque. Isn't boudoir mean risque? Well, like, bu- well, boudoir doesn't have to mean risque, does it? Well, what's risque? A bit of nip showing? Like, wh- what do you well, mean? De- goodness gracious. <laughs> yes, Carol, definitely a bit of nip, as you refer to it, showing would be. I was thinking, you know, if there was photographs of me in my dressing gown with my smoking pipe and my slippers in my boudoir, not so risque. Yeah, <laughs> it's risky enough for me not want to not want to see it. I'm telling you. Oh, I think I now want to leave the call. 
<laughs> Reisman took this risque photographs and she posted it on her Twitter circles. As you do. And she said, as usual, <laughs> as usual, it got no engagement. Now, do you know what a Twitter circle is? I didn't know what this was. I'm going to guess. Can I guess? Can I guess? Yeah, is it yeah, like yeah. a group, like a category of friends? So it's not all your followers. It's just a group of them that can see what you're showing them. God, you're so clever. Oh, thank you very much. So many times I thought you're not, but in <laughs> fact, you're a genius. You're absolutely right. A Twitter circle. This is a new feature which launched August last year, which promised users the flexibility to choose who can see and engage with your content on a tweet-by-tweet -tweet basis. The thing is, with Twitter, you've always been able to have a completely private account, right? Apart from the people outside Twitter can view it. But you, you could have a lockdown account where you had to ask permission to follow somebody. And clearly, Twitter wasn't as keen on that. So what they did was they introduced this Twitter circle concept where you could have a regular account, but you could have a sort of almost subset of the account, which you just share with a select group of friends. Yes. And only they can see it and only they can reply to it. And yeah. you know, the conversation remains intimate. <laughs> yeah, on Twitter. Right? Yeah. On Twitter. Of on course. Twitter. Yeah, yeah. On yes. Twitter. But in a way, it's it's a bit like, you know, a lot of people use WhatsApp groups, don't they? That's and true. they share pictures and messages with a small collection of friends rather than the entire universe. Rather than posting it up on a public website. They 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 use an app like that. So it's fair enough. Okay. So Twitter said, easier way, make intimate conversations, build closer connections with select followers. All makes sense. And Twitter said, you can choose who's in your Twitter circle. Only the individuals you've added can reply and interact with your tweets you share inside the circle. Only the people inside the circles can see the images. Do they say that too? Uh, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Just, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's, yeah. it's only people who you've, you've allowed to have access. That's very important because there were a number of groups who were using Twitter circles to share sensitive information. They didn't want outsiders chiming in or dogpiling on them or being unpleasant or picking on them or bullying them or anything like that. So there is, for instance, an LGBTQ plus community on Twitter called Belong To uh, for young people across Ireland. And they were using this just to talk amongst themselves, which, you know, is fine and dandy. And, and why and shouldn't cares? they do that? Yeah. Yeah. So back to the subject of this story, uh -oh, yeah. which is Ms. Reisman. And her boudoir pickies. Yeah, she shared this intimate boudoir shot. We don't know if there's a nip involved <laughs> with, or not. With, with 1,500 of her closest friends in a specific circle. Yeah. She's posted up there. She says she got virtually no engagement. That's not that unusual these days on Twitter. I'm finding you don't get much engagement on Twitter anymore unless you've got the blue tick. Those are the people who seem to be being promoted on Twitter at the moment. Mm -hmm. But... When Reisman woke up the following morning, she found people who she didn't follow back, let alone were inside her Twitter circle, had liked this, as she put it, little bit spicy photograph. Ooh, missus. And, and she didn't make a mistake. That would be my first. No, my no, first no. thing would be like, what did I do? Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. She says she's been very careful about curating her circles to the people she thinks wouldn't mind. But she says, the general public do not need to see me in my birthday suit, is what she's saying. But people did. And she has not been the only one since last month. In the last few weeks, multiple Twitter users who've been using Twitter circles have said that their private posts, their posts which they thought they were sharing just with a select group of trusted people, were in fact showing up in the feeds of complete strangers. <laughs> Wow. So can we see these pictures? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, <laughs> probably. So, so these private conversations where people are talking shit about each other, they're bitching about people, they're sharing explicit photos. You know, they think they're doing all this safely, but they're not. Trusting Twitter under the wonderful tutelage of its CEO. He who shall not be named he shall not on be this named. podcast. Finally. Let's, let's not give him more the, the oxygen of publicity. <laughs> So people have been complaining to Twitter. Now, John, you're a journalist. If you complain to Twitter, what do you think the response is likely to be? Um, radio silence more, more likely than any other response. You would think that, wouldn't you? Because, of course, Elon Musk, he who shall not be named, Lord Voldemort himself, has fired the entire press team at Twitter. So 
Yeah, you would expect them to be silent. And they were silent for a long time when people were contacting them. But they've just announced and acknowledged that a security incident did occur. They've emailed affected users. But in the meantime, any journalists who've been contacting the press team or have asked quest- more questions about this security breach, which caused these private messages to appear for anybody, have got the automatic response, which has been in place for months now at Twitter's press office, which is Twitter's press office. If you email them, they reply back with an emoji. That's the right. Only- and they send you a poop emoji is their response. Fine. <laughs> it's more than you get when you contact Apple. <laughs> yeah, it's more than you get. Yeah, I suppose it's like received, you know. <laughs> received and here's what we think of yeah. it. Yeah, so uh, Twitter is just sending poo to uh, okay. To well, it's self-describing itself, I think, but anyway. <laughs> so they claim they fixed this bug, but I think... A warning to everybody probably is once again, even if a website or a service claims it's going to keep your messages private, just simple screw-ups are going to carry on happening. And uh, there's no detail as to what caused the problem, why it took Twitter close to a month to acknowledge the problem existed, let alone fix it. Uh, It's just radio silence on that as well. So not really very impressive. It seems to me that the Twitter algorithm was promoting these supposedly private or, or restricted tweets to, to the world at mm. large. That's how they ended up in people's feeds and then these people replied and chaos ensued. So there was there's something in the algorithm that was promoting it to people. And the whole thing seems reminiscent of when Facebook had a feature that where you could restrict um, your communication to just friends and whatever. And that's a barrier Facebook keep changing and wanting yes. to push down all the time without really getting people's informed consent o- over it. So the bigger lesson seems to be if you post stuff on social media, you can expect it to leak, frankly. Yeah. So yeah. the message, if you've got something private. Don't put it on Twitter. I don't know. Don't put it on the internet. Full <laughs> stop, maybe. I think the emoji sums it up. Yeah. C'est le grand caca. Maybe it was an internal complaint not meant for the journalist, but, but just <laughs> explaining their state of feeling, you know. <laughs> it's an emotional response. <laughs> why, why can't they just plug it into chat GPT and then, and then it'll, it'll, it'll generate response and whatever? Yeah, I wonder if anyone's done that yet. Of course they have. John, what's your topic for us this week? What I'd like to talk about today is a very important legal ruling that came down from the US concerning a high-profile cyber attack, which um, dates back to 2017. It was Notpetya, which is mm. a strain of file encryption ransomware, yeah, which affected Windows machines across the world. Many, many enterprises were affected yeah, by this. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. So this... Um, targeted the update mechanism of a piece of Ukrainian accountancy software that anybody who traded in Ukraine needed to report VAT and so on and so forth called Medocs. But because it targeted anybody who had any business in Ukraine, lots of international companies as well as the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian businesses were affected. Mm. One of the worst affected was... Merck, which is a pharmaceutical company. Mm, huge one. Massive. Another was uh, advertising company, WPP. Mm-hmm. And another big victim of this was, not to be confused with Merck, but Merck line, which is shipping. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's just three, but lots of other things were affected, including consumer goods company, Reket, Lanikster, uh, not sure if contact credit correctly, and uh, DHL, logistics and passing firm. So in all, this probably cost companies billions, didn't it? This ransomware attack in terms of disruption, in terms of ships not sailing, not delivering goods. Stuff not arriving. Yeah, it it costs... PR questions from journalists not being answered and and having to resort to emojis instead, all kinds of things. They didn't even have a resort to to emojis. Uh, Basically, all the computer systems that all these companies relied on become non-operational. 
this wasn't really ransomware. It was designed to destroy systems, to encrypt things, and just render them useless. So all these companies were left with with um, out any information on how to do their mm. work. Um, wow. Nobody could talk to each other while the people involved on the sys- sysadmin site were frantically trying to contain the um, outbreak and to you know restore systems. If it happened now, I think people will will be in a slightly better position. But this was something that was a almost unprecedented attack in its scale and its speed. Mm-hmm. So that's why so many companies were caught on the hop. You know, there were DHL had parcels that couldn't right. send out. Merced line didn't know what was happening. Um, exactly. In the case of um, Merck, the pharmaceutical giant, it was left with systems that were completely unoperational. <laughs> so that's the background to the story. What's the news, you ask? <laughs> well, the news is... Yeah, John, what's the news? Yeah. What is it? Well, you started off your story by talking about WWE <laughs> and all the... Al- but I, very eloqu- I've, I very eloquently got straight to the point. Okay. He always does. Yeah. Always do, always do. <laughs> okay, so M- Merck had a insurance policy which covered uh-huh. it for all risks. <laughs> oh, God. So it went to insurers and it had um, hmm. eight insurers at least and it said some well we've suffered this damage which we can document for you it affected 40,000 of our computers shut down our production facilities left us without any apps it was terrible we would like to be compensated please hmm. and the insurers said you know this not picture thing it's an act of war a military action and if you read the small print of your insurance policy, <laughs> it will say, we don't cover walls. Oh. So we're very sorry, but we can't help you. So they've been caught out by exactly the same thing as each and every one of us is caught out by whenever we <laughs> try and make an insurance claim. And you look at the small print, you find out, actually, we're not going to cover you uh, for this detail. Now, in this particular case, they're saying because it was an act of war, because it was allegedly done by the Russians, therefore it's nothing to do with us and even though you've been given us millions to pay for insurance we're not going to give you a handout yeah it sounds sounds like pretty much par for the course for insurance <laughs> companies to me yeah it does um they had a comprehensive policy and um the insurance companies were, were trying to use a small print to, to argue yeah. that they weren't liable to pay out so this unsurprisingly it was placed in the hands of the lawyers it went to court Um, It wound its way very slowly through court. In January 2022, a court in New Jersey awarded the pharma giant $1.4 Wow. after deciding that the insurance companies had to pay up. So that's a lot of money. And what was the reason? What was the, do you know what the reason was? Did they say, no, 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 you can't use this act of war uh, clause? Is that basically what happened? They decided that the act of war clause didn't apply and what's happened last week was that the appeal court has upheld the earlier court's decision. So that, that more or less sets a precedent. So I think, I think what I read, I may be wrong about this, so correct me, John, if you've heard differently. I think I heard it said that for it to be an act of war, there had to be some physical element to it, some sort of physical, violent, kinetic activity, which... May well have saved the bacon of Merck in this case for saying, well, it wasn't an act of war then. Um, but it does sound like that maybe we're not really considering the potential yeah. for a cyber attack to be an act of war. Yeah, it sets a precedence um, for that. It's surely exactly. something insurance. I mean, other insurance companies watching this and indeed whoever Merck next turns Are to, sending each other poop emojis right now. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, they're, they're, the insurance companies are going to say, well, we're not going to fall for this one. We, know, we don't want to do a $1.4 yeah, but, billion. But they already dollar. taken the money, Graham, right? So insurance companies got on the bandwagon about five years ago thinking, I'm sure this and other tiny little uh, clauses would get them out of having to do any mega payouts. I'm sure people are freaking right now in the insurance company because of this precedent being changed. I mean, the risk has changed and um, the calculation that they, they used when these policies were set up no longer applied 
what the um, opinion bench said, and this is the key point of it, is that the, mm. the not petty attack is not sufficiently linked to a military action or objective, as it was a non-military cyber attack against an account EC software provider. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I see. Yeah. So, so it wasn't wasn't a direct attack. It was an attack via this accountants, this accounting software for Ukrainian or people doing business in Ukraine. Yeah. So this has quite big implications, um, not just for the victims of not Petya or other cyber attacks, but for how the whole insurance market mm-hmm. works. And those in insurance have already seen this coming. Um, Last year, Lloyds of London said insurance policies will exclude nation-state cyber attacks that happen during wars, declared or not, beginning in April. So rather than relying on the general term... Uh, hang on. Yeah. Hang on. So Lloyds are saying insurance won't cover cyber attacks that occur during wars. Cyber attacks, yeah. Cyber attacks from now onwards. That's... Well, hang on. Well... There are wars happening yeah, all the time. Yeah, are they relating them to wars? Are they saying, like, if this is a direct result of the war, we're not covering you? Or are they just saying, if there's a war going on, pff, no coverage for anybody? <laughs> we're not going to pay out. We're not for paying anybody. out anymore any insurance. It's interesting. It's going to be that the premiums are going to go up if people want the coverage. Yeah, that's always the answer, isn't it? Yep. Add a zero. <laughs> The other implication of this is that um, insurance companies will be very, very interested in attribution of of future cyber attacks. Yeah. And we all know how easy that is. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It never, ever goes wrong. Never, ever. (laughs) Carol, what have you got for us this week? Well, I know you guys love a quiz. Oh, great, yes. (laughs) I know you do, and I know our listeners love quizzes, so I'm kicking off my story with You Think You Know Eurovision. Oh, brilliant, okay. Okay. You're going to know more about this international contest than you ever thought possible by the end of my story. (laughs) Um, Are you guys fans of the show? So listeners that don't know your vision, it really is. There's people that hate it and there's people that love it. I'm in the love camp. I don't normally watch it. I liked it in the old days when it always used to go wrong, when people dialed in their votes. So they'd say, okay, Vienna, do you have your votes, please? And you'd get some cleaning lady on the other end. You know, it was always just a shambles. <laughs> Katie it Boyle. It still is. You still have live, you know, live from the square and there might be like you know, 80-mile winds hitting them in the face. and there's Maybe, still- maybe. I think it's all a bit too slick. And it goes on for hours and hours and hours now, doesn't it? So I'm not a huge fan these days. Well, but three hours. Yeah, well, that's hours and hours for me. John, what about you? I quite like it. I don't regard it as unmissable. What I used to do is, um, you know, watch, have the show on and then not really be watching at the acts, but be on social media laughing at people's observations about... About the acts. A modern viewer. <laughs> I think now everyone's allowed to sing in whatever language they want, so they can sing in English. Whereas sure. I used to enjoy it when they had to sing in their own language, and then I would put the subtitles on for the translation, and the lyrics on some of the songs were hilarious. <laughs> well, that's not because the lyrics were hilarious. That's because the translation of the lyrics were hilarious. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that I, I used to greatly enjoy that, I must admit. Anyway, on with the quiz. Okay, well, okay, okay, let's do a little quiz quiz. No <laughs> okay. cheating, okay? That means no chat GPT, no Googling, no okay. search engines. Okay, okay. Okay, and I've made them fairly easy so you could try and make it, okay? So right. what decade did Eurovision first air? So you know what year, what decade? I'm going to go 1950s. I was going to say, I was going to say, I'm going to say 1958. <laughs> okay, well, I said decade, decade. Graham. And Leighton, you answered first. So, yes, 1950s, Luguano, Switzerland, with seven songs. And the contest wow. was one of the earliest attempts to broadcast a live televised event to a large international market. Surely things like the World Cup preceded that for a, an event broadcast for a large international well, I said but... one of the earliest attempts. <laughs> okay. Stop being picky, John. Covered my ass there. 
<laughs> okay. Whose quiz is this, John? <laughs> how, I'm sorry, I'm in my place. How how many countries are competing this year? No, Googling. Too many. Uh, about 30. Hang on. Are you including the semi-finals and things like that and the knockout rounds? Um, yeah. Yeah, of course. All the rounds, I guess. About about 35, probably including Australia for some unfathomable <laughs> reason. Layden, you're very... 38. 37. You're just copying John Layden because you know he knows more about it than you. No, I was closer <laughs> than him. Was... <laughs> what song did the UK put forward last year in Eurovision 2022? Oh, it was that guy with the long hair. Yes. I don't know. Sam something. Was it? Sam Ryder. Something about Spaceman. Well done. Oh yeah, you... I'm on fire here. Right, that... yeah, I didn't know that one at all. And you should know that because we came in second last year, the UK, I mean. Uh, the previous yes. year, uh, we got a whopping nul point. Yeah. So we came second to Ukraine's Kalush Orchestra, okay? The song was called Stefania. It was mm-hmm. a mashup of traditional Ukrainian folk music with a modern rap and hip-hop twist. Oh, love that. Yeah. Right. And and normally, if you win Eurovision, what honor do you get as a country? You get to host the next concert. Uh-huh, the next correct. Contest. Sorry, I'm having to jump in now. <laughs> John getting all the points. Okay. <laughs> we should have a buzzer. We should have a buzzer. You could just honk or something. Um, okay. Now, for obvious reasons, Eurovision will not be held in the Ukraine, the actual, you know, the winners of last year, because, you know, there's fucking war going on. So the show airing this weekend will be coming you live from Liverpool, thanks to the BBC. And it's the first Eurovision Song Contest to be held in how many years? Um, well, it was held oh, last year. Since was, 94, it? something like that. Uh, yeah, 25 years. So you do the maths. I'm too lazy. Yeah, since Bucks Fizz won, I think. No, Dan International won last time it was in the UK. And it was in Brighton. I only know that because a friend of mine went. There you go. You see, oh, really? Layden, I see, I trust him, man. I'm sure he's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listeners, you let us know. Now, this brings me on to today's topic. Because how does one keep your vision safe from cyber BS? Because there's a lot of moving parts here, right? There's international cooperations without Russia, who was banned for its warmongering. Plus, you have, you know, real-time digital voting. You've got the whole physical security angle. You've got digital communication links across the entire planet. You know, near live votes. I could say live, but I'd say near live. Like, it's pretty amazing. And it's not always been smooth sailing, right? Because, uh, like, last year, you might remember there were shenanigans where voting irregularities were identified in six countries taking part of Eurovision 2022. yeah. This is according to the European Broadcasting Union. Uh, the IEBU say that irregular voting patterns were spotted, and I think they mean voting manipulation. Were the irregularities that they, they detected some people in Greece who weren't voting for Cyprus and some people in Cyprus who weren't <laughs> voting for Greece? Because that would, that would be irregular. It's changed slightly in that there's now a jury that kind of tops up the voting of the uh, nation in question. And there were some irregularities. They didn't go into it and they didn't name any countries, but six countries subsequently lost their voting rights, which were Azerbaijan, Georgia, Montenegro, Poland, Romania, and San Marino. And earlier this year, as people were gearing up for the show in Liverpool, you know, booking up nearby hotel rooms for the sold out show. Here's another factoid or another another quiz question. How fast did the show, the Eurovision show 2023, sell out? Mm, couple of hours. Yes. Oh, I was going to say three and a half months. All right. Okay. Uh, 90 minutes. Well done, John. 90 minutes. And Booking.com said a number of accounts had been affected by cyber attacks, which were, quote, quickly locked. Okay, this is according to the BBC. <laughs> that sounds weird phrasing. Yes! They mean denial of service attacks, maybe. I can imagine that happening against ticketing sites. The BBC writes, Booking.com confirmed to BBC News that some accommodation partners had been targeted by phishing emails, but denied that it had suffered a security breach. The way it worked, the phishing scams used WhatsApp probably due to its end-to-end encryption capabilities. And the story goes like this. So Guy books a hotel for the event, then he gets contacted on WhatsApp by someone claiming to be the receptionist, asking initially if he needed parking, and then and then claims that there was an issue with uh, his payment. 
And the guy said, oh, I thought this must be okay. He told BBC News. I got a text message from my bank and I then had a phone call from them saying that someone was trying to scam me out of money. So he thought it was all okay. And there was the phone call. The bank stopped it happening. So you've got these kind of things. You've got like people who are attending who have to watch out for phishing scams, but are there bigger concerns? And seems there is because it was brought up in the House of Commons only last week. The golden locked conservative MP for Litchfield, Michael Fabrican. Oh, for God's sake. Asked the Commons. <laughs> he, listeners, just, just look him up and you'll know why I'm acting like that. <laughs> Look, I don't think we should comment about his, you know. I'm not talking about his hair. I'm talking about his wig. <laughs> um, he asked, he said, last year during the Eurovision Song Contest, Russian agents attempted to interfere with the voting that was made for Ukraine. And he cites this correctly. Italian police thwarted hacker attacks by pro-Russian groups during the semifinal and final of Eurovision Song Contest in Turin 2022. During voting and the performances, the police cybersecurity department blocked several cyber attacks on network infrastructure by the Killnet Hacker Group and its affiliate Legion, the police said. And you remember last year saw Ukraine win the contest and early on they were pegged to do well. So, and there have been more digital disruptions with political overtones. There was one in 2019 in Israel when the national broadcaster's online stream was replaced with footage of explosions. I remember that. Right. So, brings us to last week, Fabricant, right? Mm. I shouldn't call him that. What should I call him? What, what do you call uh, What do you call I think people? Fabricant is almost correct. It's just, a, it's just one syllable you've got slightly wrong. Yes. <laughs> Fabricant um, says in the comments, this year, of course, we're hosting your vision song contest. And he wants to know what is a department doing to ensure that the integrity of the voting will be maintained? And he's not alone in being concerned because soon after, experts from the National Cybersecurity Center were called in uh, after the government and Eurovision organizers raised concerns that the competition could be a digital front for the Ukraine war. Daily Mail reported that this year's contest held in Liverpool will have reinforced cybersecurity defenses by NCSC, this is the National Cybersecurity Center. And a source told the Times, uh, while it's possible to be confident that consequences will be safe, the cyber side is far more unpredictable. So, yeah, it's kind of a case of wait and see. Or not, as the case may be. I think I personally am not going to be tuning in. Come on. Why I don't are you think so I'm grumpy about it? Well, I just, you know. It's just- yeah, it's music. It's fun. It's country. I'll tell you my favorite story about Eurovision very quickly which is, as you know, it costs money to put on the competition. So the host nation, I don't even know why the UK is doing it this year, because we've got this cost of living crisis going on. Couldn't we have combined the Eurovision contest and the King's coronation? We could have made them the same event. I reckon we could have done it. That would have been easy. They're close enough in time. Anyway, back in the 80s, Ireland kept on winning the Eurovision Song Contest, because everyone loves Ireland. And, you know, they they have a lovely brogue and the rest of it. But Ireland couldn't afford to run the competition every year. So they deliberately chose a folk duo singing a rather sappy song. They put it forward as their entry, thinking we don't want to win this year because it'll cost us a fortune. We can't afford it. Wasn't this a plot in Father's Head? (laughs) Yeah, this is probably... (laughs) My lovely horse. (laughs) Running, running in the fields. <laughs> These guys won it. And so Ireland had to host for a third year um, I'm watching it. You know what I'm doing on Saturday? <laughs> I'm watching it. I'm going to make my DIY uh, voting cards. We're going to have a great old time. Can't <laughs> highlight show, Graham. You might find something new. <laughs> no, he's like just a grumpy leaf. Beep. <laughs> This week's sponsor, Outpost 24, delivers smarter cyber risk management, making it easy to identify security gaps in your attack surface and prioritize the vulnerabilities that matter. With Outpost 24, you get the most complete view of your attack surface and threats targeting your organization, helping your security team understand what's real, what's dangerous, and what's important to fix in the environment right now. 
application security, vulnerability management, cyber threat intelligence, they've got it all covered. They can even protect your remote workforce and critical data by blocking weak and almost already compromised passwords. Sign up for a free attack surface assessment from Outpost 24. Get insights into exposed domains and web applications, leaked credentials, and more. Sign up for your free attack surface assessment at smashingsecurity.com slash outpost24. That's smashingsecurity.com slash outpost24. Now, there's some big news from our sponsor, Collide. If you are an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet up to 100% compliant. How do they do that, you're asking yourself? Well, if a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, which is device compliance. Without Collide... IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecured devices are logging into your company's apps because there's nothing there to stop them. Collide is the only device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions on how to fix it. If they don't fix the problem, within a set time, they are blocked. Collide means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. Visit collide.com smashing to learn more or to book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash smashing. Smashing security listeners, did you know that Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, on the go, or at work? Bitwarden's password manager securely stores credentials spanning across personal and business worlds, and every Bitwarden account begins with the creation of a personal vault, which allows you to store all your personal credentials. These are unique and secure passwords for every single account you access. And it's easy to set up. It's easy to use. I honestly love Bitwarden. I use it at home, use it at work, use it on the go. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan at bitwarden.com forward slash smashing. Or you can even try it for free across devices as an individual user. Check it out at bitwarden.com forward slash smashing. And thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring the show. And welcome back. Can you join us at our favorite part of the show, the part of the show that we like to call Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week is the part of the show where everyone chooses something like. Could be a funny story, a book that they've read, a TV show, a movie, a record, a podcast, a website, or an app. Whatever they wish. It doesn't have to be security-related necessarily. It better not be. Well, my Pick of the Week this week is not security-related. My Pick of the Week is a podcast. It's actually a collection of podcasts because I support this particular chap on Patreon, uh, which means I get to listen to all of his podcasts, including the episodes he doesn't release to the general public. And I also get early listening uh, to episodes months before they are released to the Great Unwashed. And the name of this chap is Toby Haydock. And what does Toby Haydock talk about? Toby Haydock's tape. trying to Toby Haydock's time travels. Oh, is Doctor all Hay- about Doctor. Funny, I hadn't heard of it. And it's a he's a very funny guy. He's a stand-up comedian. He's an actor. He's a writer, and he's also a complete Doctor Who fanatic. And <laughs> uh, he puts out several podcasts a week, all of which I listen to, um, which include episode commentaries where people challenge him to find out something which they really liked about a particular episode, so he watches it in real time. And he knows an awful lot about every single actor in Doctor Who, including the third Cyberman on the left and other things that he may have done in the past. Um, And it's just wonderful, uplifting, positive stuff about Doctor Who. Not like that boring stuff called Eurovision. 
Well, yeah. I think if you are a Doctor Who fan, you should really check out Toby Haydoke and his podcasts. And if, like me, you like him, then just for a few quid every month, you can support him as well and get the real hardcore stuff, the really geeky stuff, which he sometimes <laughs> puts out as well. Anyway, I love it. I'm sorry, I love his Toby. dog, Bernard, as well. <laughs> he also posts up a, a weekly photograph of his dog, Bernard. Um, and uh, that is why it is my pick of the week. John, what's your pick of the week? Okay, I'm going to offer a fairly practical pick of the week. Um, now, over the last couple of years, I've been whole, involved in uh, home renovations. Fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> lots of builders, lots of disruption, lots of things going on. And one of the things that uh, really helped me navigate through this was a site called mybuilder.com. Ah. So how that works is um, it makes it easy to find local tradespeople. And um, what you do uh, is free to use for homeowners. And you would post a job. Which, uh, you'd select the category of the job. It could be anything from plumbing to um, to kitchen fitting to a full renovation. Cool. And then tradespeople in, that, in your area will respond to it and you can check out their their reviews their profiles see if you want them to come around and have a look at the job and um once you meet then you can agree your price you can get um you know it's far easier to contact these people this way i found than it would be just to rely on word of mouth or just to go through the yellow pages Mm. i found it a lot easier than um than trusted trader to to work through, for example. This is really useful, John, because every one of us have this type of thing. I mean, obviously, this is only good for people in the UK, but I'm sure these kind of services exist uh, in other countries. And it's, I, yeah, this is really, I'm I'm bookmarking this. So this is a great recommendation. Yeah, it's a really, uh, you know, I've used it for over two years and the, the vast majority of the jobs are put out there. It found people for them. Some jobs you get swamped with people um, looking to do them. Um, others, you know, it's quite difficult to find people. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not a complete panacea for, for home renovations, but it is really good. And one of the biggest benefits I found was that you can write down and explain the work you you want to do. So when the builder comes, you can talk on that basis about the work you have, you want to do rather than having four or five, 10 or 15 minute conversations with different people who may or not be interested. Yeah. So it saves a lot of time, much more efficient in that way. Cool. And I'm seeing on the site. So for listeners who are in other parts of the world, they are a member of something called home advisor international. So they have a sister site at homeadvisor.com If you're in America and homestars.com, if you're in Canada, and here's my favourite in Germany, myhammer.de. Oh, well, that's wonderful. I didn't know that. Well, that's a great recommendation. <laughs> Thank you, John, for mybuilder.com. Crow, what's your pick of the week? My pick of the week was going to be the Eurovision Song Contest, but I was able to make it slightly security related. So I'm going to choose something else. And I was thinking, what do I choose? And I decided to choose the Oxfordshire Art Weeks as my oh. pick of the week. This is a open exhibitions where artists like from all over the county show their work from their studios or homes or wherever they do it. Um, And it started last weekend and it goes on for a month. And Oxford City, where I live, uh, the exhibitions start this Saturday on May 20th. And yours truly is taking part once again. It's my third year opening my studio and selling artworks and prints and all kinds of cool stuff. And Listeners, you can have a gawk at my new work because I spent the last month or so preparing and labeling and scanning and adjusting and getting them up on a website and it's been driving me insane. But I think I've managed to get most of it done for this episode. So I cordially invite you to visit crawl.wtf <laughs> uh, and see uh, how I spend my time when I'm not podcasting. 
Sounds awesome. Yeah. And if we were really lucky, by the time the show goes live, I am hoping that you will be able to vote on favorite artworks, which I would really love if you would do. It's not that it goes anywhere, but it helps tell me which ones might be more popular than others so I can help dis- help me decide which ones are displayed for the exhibition. So uh, that's a little favor, but maybe you might enjoy it too. Um, so there you go. Oxfordshire Art Weeks, my pick of the week. And if you get a chance to come down and see our little corner of the UK, do it. But if you can't make it, go to my website. So it's carol.wtf, C-A-R-O-L-E dot W-T-F. And uh, go vote on some favourites. And thank you. Fantastic. Done some terrific paintings up there, I have to say. And you've updated it recently. Around about 150 pictures. I think probably about 60 or 70 are new from last time I posted. I just only do it once a year. (laughs) It seems I hate this bit. I hate the website (laughs) updating bit so much. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, I've I've been to some exhibitions uh, run by Oxfordshire Art Weeks in the past, and they've always been good fun going around to people's houses and checking out uh, you were at I, my house last year. I was indeed. And I look forward to checking out some of your art in the flesh as well, Kroll, if I get the opportunity. Wow, sounds sincere. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I try. I mean, Kroll, <laughs> uh, you've been speaking to the folks at Outpost 24 this week. Yes, I have. I was speaking with John Stock from Outpost 24. Check it out. So, listeners, I would like to introduce you to John Stock. He is the Director of Product Management at Outpost 24. Thank you so much for coming on Smashing Security. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, you sound like you have a very busy and stressful job, because uh, from what I understand, you're managing all the feature implementations, the timelines, the testing, and everything else for the suite of cybersecurity services that are offered by Outpost 24. Like This includes things like risk-based vulnerability scanning, and application security testing, and pen testing, and red teaming, and training, certification, managed service. I mean... Do you have time for family and hobbies? No. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I make time. So, yeah, yeah, wife and two kids keep me very busy. The kids have a social life. I don't. So they, I'm busy taking them to football and cricket and everything. But, uh, no, I, I keep myself stress-free with Lego and photography. And <laughs> so they're, they're, there's a few very different things there, and none of them involve too much outside stuff. <laughs> but I'm I'm quite lucky. I live in Devon, so I'm I'm 20 minutes from the beach and have Dartmoor on my doorstep. So oh. uh, I get a lot of outside time and enjoy that. Yeah, so for our international listeners, Devon is a beautiful county in the UK. I absolutely love it. Um, but we digress. I want to talk to you about being a director of product management. So with that job, you must have some deep insight into what companies, like in general, are good at securing and what things they tend to overlook. So it's it's really funny. I was actually talking to a customer last week. I traveled up to sunny London to um, go and spend some time with them. And it's uh, it's the common problem we see is they've got too much stuff. It's, everything is online and connected mm. now. So um, when they went back, if we say go back three or four years before um, we all started changing the way we work and they had you know, a few offices and everybody was sat in an office, they knew where nearly everything was. It was in a data center or it was in a, a cloud infrastructure. And now their data centers are shutting down because lesser people are using them and things are moving into the cloud. People aren't coming into the office. You know, they're in for two days a week rather than five. So they've got mothballed offices that are now shared offices because they need to get people in and they rent out space. So suddenly they're looking at, you know, where we had, we knew where everything was. We knew that it was in our data center or we had a specific cloud account or everyone was in an office. Now, you know, someone like me who works from home and the, the other laptops in my house, we don't know how good or bad they are. So, one of the one of the challenges that they're coming across is their threats or the, the threats that they're being presented to them have grown from just what's hitting their firewall coming at them from the internet to their organization to where they're, they're where their employees are actually sat doing their work. Mm. Um, 
And it just seems more and more customers that I'm talking to now are becoming really concerned about that. You know, that I'm sat now at home with other infrastructure that is not within the organization's control, or I'm, you know, I'm traveling and sat in an airport or sat in a coffee shop or something like that. And they suddenly realized that actually that problem already existed, but they're really concerned about it. So that's one of the things that I, I'm kind of hearing a lot about is that they're seeing more, more threat coming at them from stuff they'd never considered rather than, you know, they, they think of people attacking them on, you know, um, over the internet on a global scale from, you know, big threat actors or national threat actors. And actually it's, you know, the bad things are happening from a piece of infrastructure that's not in their control that could have something bad like my wife's company may not care about the malware that's installed on her laptop they're not bothered by it and then that's trying to infect everything in my house and uh, my laptop sat there with out of antivirus that's out of date because i'm not connecting to the vpn like i should do so yeah they're just that the risks they're saying more risks opening up than they've kind of thought that they had to kind of struggle yeah, with. yeah it's before. true i mean just this weekend i had a neighbor come over and wanting to do some scanning and couldn't get her cloud account working so she was just like oh i'll just bring over my usb and slap it in your machine and i'm like whoa no 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 <laughs> no no <laughs> but no, you feel no, very thanks. i don't know i felt a bit awkward saying that but there you go but it's it's funny because that those are the little things that make people aware. Oh, is that bad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those of us who have worked in security for years, and then someone says, "Oh, can I just stick my USB in?" And you know, they're like, "What?" I'm like, "No, you're not going anywhere near my laptop with your USB. <laughs> just get out of my house." So when you're explaining how the whole landscape is kind of shifted under the feet of all these organizations, I'm imagining what comes with that is that they have less insights on how their whole network looks and, you know, because it's so disparate. Yeah. I mean, I used to be a, back back in the day um, at a university, I was a network engineer. And I remember the day of printing out an A0 sized network map because mm. it was huge um, on a big plotter. And now, well, you'd need something massive because yeah, your network is no longer those cables and wires and routers and switches in your building. It's everything else outside and probably most of the internet as well, including parts you didn't really know existed, are probably now part of your you know, you've got stuff there because I know from speaking to our marketing department a lot, um, things get thrown up and pulled down. You know, there's advertising campaigns and all these things where you go to a third party and they'll spin something up and then that's now yours and it's got your name plastered all over it and you're responsible for it. But guess who's the first person to know? It's that security person who's responsible exactly. for it. Yeah. So, that those things are, you know, that it's got your name, your it's your problem. And one of the I it's it's the whole thing of the asset management used to be the job of an asset manager, and then suddenly everyone's turned around and gone, You're a security person. Mm. You need to know where everything is, because if it gets hacked, that's your problem. You know, CISOs need to know where everything is, and they can't just say, Oh, it's all in our CMDB, it's all in our IPAM, because it's not. <laughs> I think, I think, I guess what I'm hearing is that it's basically impossible to have 100% visibility of the entire network and the potential attack surface that comes with it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you can get close. So it's, it's possible to get close, but, uh, you know, 100% is going to be impossible. You know, if, if you just rely on a CMDB, maybe you're like, 60 70 percent of the way there that, that's quite a good step forward you know where the laptops that you've bought should be um you know where the devices you've bought should be but that doesn't take into account you know developers uh, love them to bits because we couldn't do any of the stuff we do about a good right. team of developers however you know there's there's instances where they've they throw things up in the cloud because they just need to test it and then oh it works and they're so happy it works they walk away and forget about it or you know we've had quite a few customers we've been talking to where that's happened way too many times because things have been thrown up and they've forgotten about it or they've thrown it up and it hasn't worked. So they've left it there and worked on it. And then they're running vulnerable services because they've just thrown it up to solve a problem without thinking, how is that secure? But that seems to me like that's what most people do. There's someone in most companies that does that approach, hopefully not working in security, to your point. (laughs) 
no, no, hopefully, hopefully not. But it, yeah, mm-hmm. there's there's always, you know, we all come yep. across that thing. What's the easiest way to solve this problem, right? And and as a product manager, that that's the kind of thing that I'm all about solving problems. How can I solve this problem? And uh, sometimes it's really easy. Oh, I just need to document it. Other times it's like, yeah, let's just throw this up and test it. And you throw something up in a cloud. Now, if you're good, you go to your cloud people and go, hey, I need to do some testing on this. And they're like, okay. We'll provide you an instance. They provide it, and you get it for a set amount of time, and then they kill it down, and you know it was secure while you were testing it. But yeah, there's nothing stopping me going into my own cloud account, throwing something up, and putting it in, having you know, Outpost 24 all over it, and mm. forgetting about it, and paying the bill every month, and it being associated with the organization, which I would point out I would never do because too many people get angry at me. And- <laughs> So this seems a good time to pivot to Outpost 24's Vulnerability Prediction Technology, or VPT. What can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, um, I mean, one of the big challenges you get, so when when you're in security, you're you're scanning your stuff, right? Everybody runs vulnerability scanning. I'm not saying everybody likes it. You know, no one does it by choice. You do it because the auditors have said you've got got to do it. There's a regulation that says you've got to do it. Or you need to check that your security, your base level security is pretty good. But no one does it because they think it's an exciting thing to do. Um, (laughs) And you find out what your vulnerabilities are and you get a a CVSS score. Now, CVSS scores are great, but they they don't have any context really in them. You know, you get a a score from zero to 10. Zero, ah, ignore it. 10, it's really bad. Um, But that's not really looking at the risk. It's just looking at, you know, what's the potential threat? of that vulnerability doesn't matter if no one's ever going to build an exploit for it if it's potentially really bad then it will still have a high score even though it could be almost impossible to build an exploit for it and it's probably not worth everybody working at the weekend to try and patch it so the idea behind vpt is it uses our um our threat intelligence technology that we have and actually looks at what are the real world threats of this vulnerability so rather than just yeah there's the cvss score 10 we must fix it it's like okay let's look are there any threat actors actually talking about this vulnerability itself um is it used in any malware yeah how how much is it being discussed on social media those kind of things because you know you often find that just the social the social side of things is quite a good indicator of whether something's going to be big or small (laughs) and it's like you know, your VPT kind of gives you just the edge, doesn't it, on on the attack surface that you can't basically fully lock down because you're not fully aware of it for whatever reason. And it allows you to focus on what's important. I think that's that's the key thing, right? If I've got a million vulnerabilities, um, and to be honest, the size of some organizations, that's not unheard of. You know, it's it's not a bad thing. You just not you can't fix everything. No. But if they've got a million and they're like, oh, we don't know where to start, it's there's a couple of ways to start. It's okay, what's the stuff that's most likely to be exploited and maybe is exposed, right? So internally, we all talk about the internal threat, and I know it's still high, but if you look externally, there's billions of people externally and maybe hundreds to thousands internally. So, you know, obviously internet facing stuff is like this like the wild west out there. So that's the priority and stuff that, you know, likely has that exploit available. Yes, that's the stuff you should prioritize. So it's where do you get the most bang for your buck in terms of remediation? Where can you make the most difference without paying six months worth of overtime in a weekend? <laughs> and that, that's all it is. It's, it's trying to bring the focus into your, your business risk rather than just saying, oh, yes, this formula says that these are all really potentially high risk. So look, taking it away from potential risk to actual risk. It's funny. It reminds me of when I got my my true corporate business legs was when a, a coworker explained to me, I was like, how do you manage like this list of 80,000 things I have to do by tomorrow? What, you know, how do I do it? She goes, you bring it to your boss and you say you prioritize it and then just go and do it. And I thought that's so genius. So that's kind of what you guys are doing. Yeah, You're kind of prioritizing it and giving, you know, giving the, the, the people that are responsible for security the chance to focus on the biggest fish. Yeah. And it's, it's understanding your risk appetite as well. So this is another thing that I've always, I, I kind of talk to a lot of, a lot of customers about is what is your risk appetite? And most organizations don't actually know 
<laughs> what their risk appetite is. Because yeah, I always say, oh, you'd never catch me doing a bungee jump because my risk appetite is not that high. It's way too dangerous. But actually, things I have done like scuba diving and even driving every single day are way more dangerous. If you look at the the deaths per million people, um, mm. they are way more dangerous than a bungee jump. Like <laughs> driving to work is the most dangerous thing I can do. It's you should try walking. <laughs> no, <laughs> there, there's limits here. Uh, That's wonderful. Is there anything you'd like to add? One, understand what your risk appetite, how much risk you're willing to accept. And two, make sure you get when you're, when you're remediating vulnerabilities. Don't panic. Don't think, oh, I've got a million. I've got to fix. And I've got to do them all now. It's what can you fix and get the most value out of what's going to, you know, what can you do to impact your business in terms of risk and reducing that risk as easy as possible? Brilliant. Now, listeners, you will be thrilled to learn that Outpost 24 is offering a free attack surface assessment. So this will give you insights into things like domain and web applications exposed on the internet, staging applications in clear text form that may be putting you at risk, old and vulnerable components in use, leaked credentials, and you'll even get an attack surface risk rating and recommendations. So you can sign up for your free attack surface assessment at smashingsecurity.com forward slash outpost 24. And thank you so much, John Stock, Director of Product Management, for coming on the show and giving us a bit of your time. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really fun. Brilliant. Terrific stuff. And that just about wraps up the show for this week. John, um, I'm sure lots of listeners would like to follow you online. And maybe there are some folks who would like to hire your cybersecurity expertise if they need some content written. What's the best way for folks to do that? Uh, you can find me on Mastodon or Twitter or LinkedIn. And you can follow us on Twitter at Smash Insecurity. No G. Twitter and last have a G. And also Smash Insecurity has a Mastodon account. And don't forget to ensure you never miss another episode. Follow Smash Insecurity in your favourite podcast apps such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Overcast. And huge, huge shout out to this episode's sponsors, Collide, Outpost 24 and Bitwarden. And of course, to our wonderful Patreon community. It's thanks to them all that this show is free. For episode show notes, sponsorship information, guest list and the entire back catalogue of more than 320 episodes, check out smashingsecurity.com. Until next time, cheerio. Bye bye. Bye. Adios. I tell you what, we got through an episode of number three two one without mentioning Dusty Beanold. Oh, his show. No, Ted Rogers. Ted Rogers was. Ted it? Rogers. That's Ted Rogers and Dusty. Be oh, we missed a trick there. Definitely. Crow, have you heard of Dusty Bin and three two one? No, they're too young. <laughs> I think she probably wasn't in the country when that was on. No, it's oh, another right, ITV okay. thing as well. It's probably on after the wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see.